kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's Monday night. It's a little bit after six o'clock. Welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. Um, with me tonight is the bubbly and vivacious Miss Jeannie Kay, who is also acting as my wonderful sound engineer. <laughs> <laughs> And with the assistance of Skype, we uh, hope to make it through the evening without too many issues. Uh, I will fully disclose the fact that less than five minutes ago, Jan and I were both um, thinking very, we're going to kill you. Oh, yeah. It, it was bad. It was real bad. We miss Ferry. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't pay him enough, do yeah. I? Yeah, he is definitely the technical genius of this group. Yeah, he is. Um, so I, I guess I know... If anybody, because I just, I don't advertise really the show anywhere. I just stick it on my Facebook page. And if you catch it, great. If you don't, you know where to show up on Monday nights because you know I'm going to be here because I can't help myself. Um, Tonight, uh, the first thing we're doing is the CASA update. And the president of CASA, Julie Wozner, is going to join us here in just a second. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, vaping advocacy and how it's changed because there really aren't too many major calls to action. I think people really get bored of hearing the same thing over and over and over again. So, Jeannie, when you get Julie, let me know, okay? All righty. Thank you. So, hopefully the love will sound good all the way through. Hello. Good evening. Hi, Julie. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Jan, you have to turn you up, dear. Uh, I have to turn me up? Yep. Uh, Okay, give me a second. Tools, options, video settings. Is is this any better? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, Good evening and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 8-10-2015. Um, with me is the president of CASA. 
Hi, Julie. How are you this evening? Hi, Jan. I'm doing great. Hi, Jeannie. Hi, Julie. Um, you know, we really don't have a whole lot of calls to action, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> Yay. Well, we are going to get another one out probably tomorrow. It's okay. on the FDA labeling and um, warning language. But yes, it has been light for the last week, um, but but we've got a few more coming up. Yeah, it um, it's unusual to have that period of rest, but it's nice. And I think um, you've been active with CASA from the very beginning. Yep. It's yeah. been a long time. <laughs> it has six years. Julie, Julie was the first person I ever had a conversation with about advocacy. And mm-hmm. I doubt she remembers that. I, you know, well, it seems like we've known each other forever, Jeannie. So I don't even know when that was because we always talk advocacy. But, yeah, I mean, CASA was actually formed in 2009 and um, formally incorporated, I guess, in 2010. Um, and I've been a part of it first just as an active member. Um, I actually voted for the first board of directors. Wow. That's that's going back. But Jan, I think you did too. And Jeannie, you're right in the same time frame as Jan and me, aren't you? Um, I what January the eighth was my five year mark. Oh, you're a baby. And yeah. <laughs> and um VaporCon one was actually the first vape meet or even vape shop that I had ever been to. Wow. I had never been to a meet of any kind or in a vape shop until after I was at VaporCon 1. Well, I think, you know, when I joined, when I first started vaping, um, it was January of 2009. So I'm at six and a half years now. And my first event was um, Vape Fest um, Midwest, Midwest Vape Fest, and that was in St. Louis. And we had like 200 people, and it was so exciting. (laughs) I mean, we we just thought that was the biggest thing ever. Two hundred people. It, it was just amazing. Um, now I'm getting ready to head off to ECC this week, and I I couldn't even begin to tell you how many people will be at that. So things have definitely changed quite a bit. Um, it it really has grown. Um, if you were to look at the no- you probably know better than I do what the numbers have been all along. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we've been in the process of transferring um, all our corporate information and consolidating everything and updating our website and getting our new one going. So, yes, I am the keeper of all numbers. And I was going through our old email system, um, checking things out. And it turns out in September 2010, that's really the first record we have of an email going out using our constant contact system. Um, And we had 1,000 360 members in September of 2010 wow. and um, I just thought that was amazing then in December of 2011 more than a year later we had 1,514 so a growth <laughs> of like oh slightly under 200 and <laughs> and we were still pretty excited um, what is yeah. the number today well this morning the number was 68,469 members. Um, oh. And then I checked again this afternoon before I got on, and and we've grown by another 30 wow. today. So our, our growth has been, you know, really pretty significant. But that, that was something that Kassad really 
intentionally did. We spent the last year and a half intentionally working hard to grow our numbers um, because that's how you gain credibility when you're dealing with these regulators. It's um, kind of hard when you go in and say, oh, we represent a handful of people. Um, you know, but the other thing, too, is by increasing our numbers, that incre- increases our reach so that we're able to help more people activate um, in their area when something comes up. Um, back in the old days, oh, gosh, um, and I know both of you will remember this. So we'd have this this call to action that would come out for, you know, like, I don't know just say North Dakota. And we say, wow, we have like 12 members in North (laughs) Dakota. This is really, you know, we need help. And so we put out the call to action. We say, hey, everybody, our entire membership of, oh, I don't know, 2,000 people, help us, you know, help North Dakota and write your emails. And um, it it was a very heartfelt (laughs) approach, but um, really not particularly productive. Clearly, legislators primarily care about what the people who are voting for them think. Um, And so one of our our goals was to really grow so that we'd have enough numbers in a state in order to mount an effective um, campaign to kind of fight back against some of this really awful legislation. And we've been successful in that, I I think. Um, But, yeah, wow, I still remember that. People like, oh, yes, I'm going to write a letter to help Wyoming, you know, and, (laughs) and, you know. I I think that was before we knew um, that – Oh yeah. This was kind of a numbers game that the way politicians really do stuff is by, you know, who who can keep them elected and in power and and they took real stock in the numbers. But I remember in the old days the calls to action they weren't quite as formatted. They kind of went out with talking points and you really had to, you know, write the emails yourself. And right. I, I know you wrote a lot of those. Yeah, those were the that was a deliberate strategy. Even mm-hmm. back then, we knew that our best bet, of course, was to have a pile of people from the state participating. Right. And there are two ways that you can make an impact. Um, one is just sheer numbers. So if you look at it that way, a form email just really doesn't matter. You know, they'll they'll look and say, oh, we've got. 3,715 opposed to this legislation. So it's just a numbers game. The other way to look at it, though, is in terms of individualized stories Mm -hmm. and individualized testimony. People, real people writing their real story to their legislators and explaining why this is such an important issue that, yes, I am taking the time to weigh in on this and, and share my thoughts with you. Well, we didn't have the numbers we you know there's only so much you can do um in the very beginning when everything's starting out but we did have people with a whole lot of passion and so we deliberately chose not to offer form emails because then you know if you only get a handful of form emails it's kind of um it looks pathetic (laughs) you know i'll I'll just be honest um So it was a deliberate strategy on our part, and so the people who were participating in the calls to action in the early days were the ones who were, who were just so passionate that they took the time to put their story um, together and make a few points and send an email. Yeah, it well, wasn't just a, a push and click. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, now we have the Testimonials Project, which is, oh, I think, I love really that. I like that. I mean, I think it's... it's I don't important. like it. I love it. 
I, it's I love a, it. Well, I, I, what I like about it is when legislators ask, does this really help people? You can point to those 4,000 stories or 5,000 stories or however many we're at now. I'm not really sure. And go. Almost to 5,000. Yeah. But we need more. We need we do. more. Um, because, well, the, the reason why I love it is, like you said, um, the legislators are actually looking at it. Um, and some of the testimonials are so profound and mm -hmm. um, I, 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 moving. I, there's no other word for it. Um, that they, they really are just incredibly powerful. Others, not so much. Um, but... But by and large, I mean these are these are just incredibly powerful stories, and legislators um, are looking at them, and we're starting to get the website um, out. Um, Brad Radu yeah. actually, um, you know, published something with the um, link to the testimonials, mm -hmm. and and it really is getting out there. But we need a lot more. Yeah. in order to counteract this this horrible charge that the other side makes, which is we are all anecdotes. Well, it's uh, kind of something they've always been saying. Um, yeah. It, now they're just very loud about it. Now yeah. it's now it's hurting their pocketbooks, so I think they're being louder about it. I, I yeah, had somebody ask me if my testimonial was true. And I'm like, <laughs> really? really? Why, why would I lie about that? Yeah. Well, that, you you crazy. well you had a, a real you had a life changing experience, yeah. Jeannie. You really did. I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, and it's like, why would I tell people I damn near died? <laughs> and I, I I don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe it's I, because all the I'm ants here. think that we're all t big tobacco shills. That's the only reason I, I can I, think I of that you would question somebody's testimonial. I want to know where my check is. If I'm a big tobacco shill, where's my check? <laughs> well, you know, the, the problem is, of course, that um, the people who make their living working for, um, you know, these anti-THR organizations, um, they get paid to do it. Now, yeah. a lot of the, actually, no, I'm not even going to say a lot of them, a fair number of them you know, are truly passionate about it and, and they think, you know, this is really awesome that I'm getting paid to do something that I really enjoy. But at the end of the day, they're, they're getting paid to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for them to conceive of people who are so passionate about something that they're doing it when there's nothing obviously, you know, that they're getting in return. Um, and, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me because, you know, this is kind of a full-time job for me, um, yeah. even though, you know, I don't get paid. And, and um, yeah, they just they they just think, well, I wouldn't do that. Um, now, granted, I'm in a position where you know, we I don't have to get paid, um, and not everybody is in that position. So, you know, it's not a swipe like that. But, yeah, I mean, this is something that people are passionate of about that they spend their time doing it even if they're not getting paid well um, I mean and it's hard for them to imagine that well it, this is people's lives and their livelihoods um, so of course people are going to be very passionate about it um, this is a life changing thing for a lot of people and I think people and disregard that um, to some people to uh, the 
anti-THR people, I think it, it looks like fun or it looks like nonsense. But um, to, to them, people who've reduced smoking or stopped smoking should be suffering or not doing that. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's it's a really interesting thing because... You know, for especially for those in the early days, um, vaping wasn't nearly as easy. You know, there there weren't shops that you could go to. You were kind of buying a pig and a poke mm-hmm. because everything was online. There there were no brick and mortars back in the the early days, and all the information that you would get was off the internet. And um, you know, things have really changed pretty remarkably and I don't think that the anti-e-cigarette folks ever expected it to take off like this I think they expected that they were just these weird little fake novelty items you know like a wooden cigarette that people might use as a prop to you know kind of hold or whatever and they never really thought that it would take off and by the time it became clear that it was taking off um you know, the horse was actually out of the barn. And, you know, that's what the advocacy has been since the inception was fighting hard enough to stay alive to continue to fight another day because we almost got shut down oh, yeah. in 2009, 2010. I, I don't think a lot of the newer people realize just how close we came to having the whole thing just completely shut down. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty bad, actually. Um, oh, oh yeah, and, we were saving our crappy atomizers, you know, the, the old atomizers. We were we were saving them, thinking because this was well before anybody was making atomizers in the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, or rebuilding atomizers. Yeah. Um, they hadn't even thought yeah. of a rebuildable. Oh yeah, it was it was just beyond anybody's conception back then, and and so we were saving all these crappy little atomizers, thinking, you know, if worse comes to worse, maybe we can learn how to rebuild them. I, it's just such a different universe. Um, but I think you know, a lot of times I'll hear people, you know, complain about advocates today, you know, that people don't want to do the advocacy, and advocacy isn't now what it was back in the day and um, I I think there's probably a little bit of truth to that certainly in the beginning we had a higher concentration of the vaping population was pretty die hard and um, pretty motivated but that's because we had a different breed in the beginning those were all of the outliers who were willing to try something really strange and um, you know like I said it wasn't super easy for a lot of people because the equipment was just so poor. I mean, yeah. batteries that would last 15 to 20 minutes, and then you'd have to recharge it. And, you yeah. know, you'd or- order 10 atomizers, <laughs> and four would arrive dead on arrival. And, and Oh, yeah. yeah. No, the, the tech in the beginning was absolutely horrible. I, I think people don't really know how bad it was, because people like... Um, Cisco and and other people with their work on low resistance really did. Um, oh my goodness, they, that was a game changer. It really was. And oh, yeah. People don't know. People don't know. They don't no, know how they, lucky they are. I remember back um, when the first variable. Um, well, it wasn't. For, it was variable voltage was first coming out, and you know it was the fist pack, right? You remember oh yes. That? And um, I remember all these people talking about, you know, I remember when, you know, in order to change my 
voltage, I'd have to change my batteries, you know, because <laughs> yeah. we, we were stacking batteries back then, too, to change. Um, yeah. I try not to even think about some of the things we did back then. But I was sitting there thinking, well, I remember back in the days when we simply didn't change our voltage because there was just no way to do it oh, unless yeah. you built your own mod. Oh, um, sure. And 16, it was with batteries. Stacking 16 340s. Oh, yeah. They're oh, yeah. the most useless battery I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. Why the hell anybody ever thought? But it was awesome hey, at the time. Hey, I'm going to take I remember that. I, that I was, only lasts I was 30 all about that. And, yeah. um, oh, no, I've since I gotten rid of all of those. Yeah, I hated them. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I loved it. For the first time, I was getting a, a powerful tape. Well, but, most of the stuff yeah. we had, I think it barely even vaporized the liquid. Oh, yeah. Which was probably not optimal for what but we were doing. That was when low resistance was anything below 2.2. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. But that was a game changer because mm-hmm. all of a sudden, instead of, you know, everybody was chasing the 5 volt experience mm-hmm. right and instead of doing that you could pair a low resistance atomizer with a 3.7 battery and all of a sudden you know life was good you you got the same type of vape as you could with um more batteries and all of that stuff so it really was a game changer and that was the end of the stacked batteries thank yeah. you because um, i don't think we really realized at the time um you know, all the potential problems. And of course we realize now, and I think people are developing a very healthy respect. Do you remember when, when Cisco brought out the HH? Do you remember how much people had an absolute shit fit about the cost of an HH 357? Right. Oh yeah. Do you know that I still have my HH 357 and that atomizer still works exactly like it did? It hasn't even lost point one. In resistance, wow! Yeah, that's my that's all I use really. I always buy like the, the cool, fun things and all that. But my all day vape is an HH three fifty seven, and um, my atomizers last on average somewhere between six months to two years. Wow! And and that's using them every single day. Um, it's pretty amazing, but I just, I just remember how much of a fit everybody had about the price of them. But oh, yeah, we've got they were like we, what twenty twenty five dollars or something. Yeah, and, but we've got rebuildable atomizers now that are hundreds yeah. of dollars. Well, don't you remember yeah. what the and, atomizers cost in the beginning? Yes, I <laughs> you know I'm not really talking about I used any to premium atomizer. No, I'm talking about you know the five tens or whatever. They were like nine ninety nine. Yeah, and I'm not yep. even kidding you, Julie. I killed nine atomizers in seven days once. Oh, yeah, well, it. back then, I don't think the quality control was even all that great either. No. Because I, really I, don't, I don't think what China came out with was what we were using them for, you know? Um, no. So. no, but it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, of course, now I, I feel like one of those old people. Yeah, get off my you know, lawn. Walk. You know, I, I had to walk to school two miles in the snow up way, up uphill both ways. And, um, you know, but I, I think that people still really care about this. But, yeah. you know, we had a higher concentration of the diehards early on. And um, but I, I think people really do care and they're just looking for help in terms of you know, how to get involved, how to get their their voice heard. Um, but. 
very few people want to spend much time at all doing that. Yeah, oh, and sure. I, I don't think, you know, I mean, and it's not the whole we walked uphill, you know, two miles back and forth from school <laughs> each way in three feet of snow barefoot. I think it's a little bit more that we have a greater appreciation for where we're at in vaping right now because yeah. we came from there. Yeah. Where new well, people it's... just walking in take this for granted. I should be able to get a 150-watt box mod for $69. You know, they, well, they expect that because they've never known any different. Yeah. Well, and, and it's almost impossible to look at the incredible diversity out there. You know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of different types <laughs> of liquids from different manufacturers, different devices hitting. I mean, it used to be in the day that you could keep up with all the new devices because there weren't tons of them now it would be impossible but it's impossible right now to look at all that diversity and and think that it could all go away um and i think what people really need to appreciate is that the way the regulations are shaping up um it won't go away completely we'll have a black market um which I find rather horrifying because a black market is inherently not a very safe environment. Mm. It's certainly better than the alternative, but we'll always have a black market. And the other thing is we'll have the sigalikes. Mm. You know, it, it, it would be impossible for the FDA to set something in motion that would um, ban every single bit of e-cigarette hardware and liquid out there it would be impossible there would be an uprising mm-hmm. but they can set it up so that only if you get through the process and those would be the ones with the money and the closed systems and so we'd all be looking at sigalikes on the um legitimate market and yeah. then you know everything else would be black and gray market and um it could happen yeah which is well, why we need to keep fighting um but they don't believe it <laughs> They, they just, they don't believe it. They're like, oh, you know, FDA doesn't have authority to do that, or FDA wouldn't do that. Um, yeah. yeah. Or, or, you know, I get calls all the time from vendors saying, so what is this? I heard that FDA might be regulating <laughs> e-cigarettes. Yeah, it's just like, oh. But, and, you know, the other thing, too, is in the beginning, we skewed older in the demographics, mm-hmm. Now we're skewing younger, and which is which is a good thing because I look at it as, wow, if I had made the switch in my twenties, right, I, I would be so much better off. I mean, my my health has dramatically improved, but I will never be a never smoker. I've done some damage that's not going to be repaired. So I'd rather see people switch early rather than later. So I'm very happy to see our demographics skewing younger, but the, right flip side is the younger people don't seem to um because they don't have all the health problems that lifelong smokers had they also they'll see some benefits but maybe not as miraculous mm-hmm. as those benefits seem to those of us who were smoking for decades yeah, and the big uh, thing is with that younger demographic we we have to acknowledge that with every younger demographic of anything they all, or a great portion of them, are still under that, I'm six foot tall and bulletproof 
Oh yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah. Thing. And I mean and and that's not you know, and I'm not saying it's it's of that age demographic. That's just mm-hmm. that's the reality in the world in real life, not just for us. Um, yeah. you know, and I, I don't 20s, think all of them are like that. I don't want to bash the the youngsters, but you know, I will say honestly that I always thought that I'd quit smoking by the time I was old, and of course, old was thirty. Yeah, you know, old. And, but that old was, was thirty. That was thirty was us, just you know? impossibly old. Yeah, and, and I'm not complaining about the young kids. I'm just saying happen. that that is that is a common thing with people in that age group. Um, I was that way when I was in that age group. You know, I didn't think that abusing my body, racing motorcycles and shit was was ever going to make me ache and hurt. Well, <laughs> yeah, I was wrong. I also thought my metabolism would always stay good. And I'd say then that ship sailed. But, you know, here's the thing. I meet lots of young people who are very passionate about this. Um, and maybe their their passion is in slightly different format than mine like they're passionate about all the choices and the social aspects um and the devices and the cool rebuildings and and there's nothing wrong with that right you know there there's something about this that appeals to a pretty wide demographic it's just different things for different people mm-hmm. um so i'm i'm happy that we're skewing younger i'm i'm really happy um I hope I don't sound like I'm telling kids to get off my lawn because some of the, some of the youngsters are some of our most passionate advocates and they're just coming at it from a slightly different area. But we don't have as many of those as right. we do um, percentage-wise of our older population because the older population is the one that couldn't get up the flight of stairs without pausing mm-hmm. to catch their breath. True. I also think... Um your older population has seen things regulated out of existence before. Oh yeah. So. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We've we've lived the history. But in any event, I don't know how long have we been on cuz I my goal was not to do more than 15 minutes. Oh, you're uh, always barking it. <laughs> yeah, you're uh, screwed. <laughs> The, the lengthy <laughs> podcast. I, I did that, didn't I? I went over 15 minutes. That's, that's okay. Um, it was it, it's a rarity to have you on. Oh, well, so, I, I appreciate it. I, I'm sorry Alex wasn't here to give the, the legislative update such as it is, but this week we should be coming out with um, an FDA call to action as right. well as um, some stuff for California because oh. poor California. Uh, um, but fortunately, yeah. California advocates are very active and busy, and California is well represented. Um, so. Yeah. We've got that going, and um, hopefully I'll see some folks at ECC. I've got a busy travel schedule coming up for the next few months. Yeah, so do. Yeah, yeah, but it's always nice seeing people. I mean, yeah. I, I really enjoy it. Um, so anybody who's going to any of these events, um, if if there's a CASA booth, stop by, because I sometimes get very lonely, because we don't give out the free stuff. <laughs> we, we're not throwing out free e-liquid and stuff like that um but but the people who do come by it's just such a pleasure such a pleasure to visit with them anyway thanks ladies any uh, any quick question for me before i beg Um, off and let you guys get back to your your show no um thank you for coming on it was it was great it was great and it was good to talk about how much advocacy has changed 
in the past versus now. So yeah, I, I just I I want to say one thing. Okay, and and this means that the next time you and Alex go way over, I can't say anything. But <laughs> um, I think a lot of times there is a desire to shame people into mm-hmm. advocacy um, and to beat them up and all of that. And right. I personally don't think that's very helpful at all. I think people should be led to advocacy by feeling empowered and understanding what's at stake. But guilting people into it isn't going to affect any long-term change. Um, You know, they've got to just feel it for themselves and it's our job to help them understand how important it is and, and how much of a difference they can make. Yeah. So anyway, exactly. One person can make a huge difference. Oh, let me tell you, one mm-hmm. person talking to one legislator mm-hmm. yeah. can make a huge difference. Um, exactly. So we, we need to tell our stories and we need to not be bashful about it. And we need to find the time and energy to do it, even though it seems like an unending, unending job. But there you go. Anyway, that's it. Thanks, ladies. And I'll talk to you later. Okay. Thank you, Julie. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, how bad is the sound now? It went away. It went away. Yeah, I don't know what it was, but I could hear it too. Yeah, sounded like I mean, it sounded like a fan. It's usually like a fan buffering, buffering. Right. Yeah, well, buffeting. That's I mean, the right word. I have on my computer, and this this is why <laughs> I have somebody who actually does the sound for this show. And, Everybody who does a show should have somebody who does their sound. And obviously it's not me that does the sound because we've just demonstrated well, why. I, I have I have a, a graphics intensive computer, so it's got fans all over the place. And I think for some reason with probably the, with the Windows 10 update and the new Microsoft update that I got today and, and the update in Skype, I think it's making the mic that much more sensitive and of course not having a mixer now makes it a little more difficult so i'm sorry about that guys i think you were picking it up for me so but it's better thank god okay i tried to sleep through another show thanks you could have just come here and slept no 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 he laid down and took a nap and didn't wake up in time i'm just saying you could just you could sleep through my show you could come here and sleep. It'd be okay. <laughs> I've put Barry to sleep before. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good times. So, um, I, I think we're going to talk about the shower gel lady first. Okay. Okay. So, um, some of you have, have been on my Facebook page. Some of you know who I am. I'm not really all that interested in being famous, so I don't really put a ton of stuff out there so yeah this is um, this is this is a fucking duh moment <laughs> it, it really is i don't know how jan i really don't know how to say it other than that okay so this woman says she's not chef of of the week um she's not at all okay um a woman's admission that the reason her food tasted disgusting was because she was using olive oil shower gel by mistake has swept social media. Melody Jackson, who is believed to be American, 
probably from Florida, confessed <laughs> to her mistake in a funny post on Facebook, revealing that her bottle of Yves Rocher gel, which is emblazoned with pictures of olives, looked so like cooking oil that she had been adding it liberally to her cooking. She posted on Facebook, I've thrown two saucepans away and nearly got rid of my dishwasher because my food kept tasting nasty. <clears throat> the half-empty shower gel, um, really, it, it kind of looks like, it kind of does, it's the same green color as, as virgin olive oil is, but I don't... Well, but what, and, and here's my thing, Jan, okay? Yeah. And, and we keep calling this shower gel, shower gel, shower gel. And mm-hmm. I get that, and you and I understand that this is shower gel. Right. But please read to me the two words under olive oil. Um. Uh, <laughs> um. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. No. Jan, read those two words. Bain Bain douche shower okay. gel. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. I can't imagine, and I, my French is terrible, so you'll have to excuse the mispronunciation I, I, of words. I know, but, you know, douche is an, an American word, too, so I really <laughs> would have assumed that if she saw olive oil, and I'm like, okay. <clears throat> yeah. Um, turns out what I thought was olive oil was olive oil shower gel. Uh, Chef of the Week award is not mine. Her pal, who was tickled by the mixed-up, then posted about it on Reddit, along with a picture of the beauty product in question with the caption, My friend's food kept tasting funny. She bought new saucepans and was about to buy a new dishwasher. Then I saw this was what she was cooking with. In the image, it is clear that the bottle is half empty, meaning Melanie must have been using the shower gel for a long time. The $9 bottle of shower gel, which is on sale in the U.S. and U.K., comes with a pink bow around the neck, suggesting it was a present. However, if she had looked closer at the label, that spells out that it was indeed for use in the shower with the words in French, bain douche, which is then translated underneath into shower gel. You know, um, have you ever burnt soap? Yes. Yeah, me too. It's, it's quite a stench. I, I can't imagine that it wouldn't bubble, but I really don't know anything about that. Um, it's unreal. I mean, I, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm not claiming to be a genius because I've done some really stupid shit before. <laughs> I think everybody has, but I'm surprised she was using it for quite a long time and didn't have any gastric problems. Well, maybe it was soy based. <laughs> That's no excuse. <laughs> I'm trying to help her out. I know. Uh, so everybody on Reddit is just crucifying this poor woman who has an awfully hard time reading. Um, <clears throat> so one woman said that her mother was cooking with washing up liquid once, and and the whole family had uh, gastric problems from it. And then this one woman told a story about his friend who made brownies with eggshells um, rather than egg whites because he thought that was the part of, that was the white part of the egg so that that was egg whites. Um, I'm disturbed about uh, the future of the world. 
Well, Jen, you know, you got that, and then you got the people that are on the internet screaming about, well, if that guy wins the election, I'm moving out of the country. I'm going to go live in Alaska. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, speaking of horrible people in politics, because, you know, it's not really a complete show unless I do that. Um let me see if I can find it. Because it's been a actually a pretty interesting week so far. Um, I was most interested by the thing I didn't see, which was the debate. The Republican debate that um, Fox News had. And I've read the transcript, so that's kind of why I find it interesting. Although everybody who saw it was like, that was the scariest thing I've ever seen. Well, that's cheerful, right? That gives me hope for the future. The reason that I find this interesting is mostly more because of what was said rather than wasn't said. Um, So Lee Fang, who works for the Internet, um, the Internet, the Intercept. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I was reading about people with um, negative IQs and it catches So he wrote this. Uh, Donald Trump says he can buy politicians. None of his rivals disagree. Donald Trump bragged Thursday that he could buy politicians, even the ones sharing the stage with him at a Republican presidential debate. Trump was asked about something he said in a previous interview. When you give, they do whatever the hell you want them to do. You better believe it, Trump said. If I ask them, if I need them, you know, most of the people on the stage I've given to, just so you understand, a lot of money. The only complaints came from two candidates who yelled that they had received no Trump money. As Trump continued to talk, he was interrupted by Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, complaining that Trump instead gave campaign contributions to Rubio's Democratic opponent. I hope you will give to me, said Governor John Cash of Ohio. Sounds good. Sounds good to me, Governor, Trump said. Without missing a beat, the real estate tycoon continued. I was a businessman. I give to everybody. When they call, I give. And when you need something, even if it's three years down the road, you call and they are there for you. And that's a broken system. Repeatedly asked what he got in return for his donations, Trump said, with Hillary Clinton, I said, be at my wedding. And she came to my wedding. You know why? She didn't have a choice because I gave. I gave to a foundation that, frankly, that foundation is supposed to do good. Though it surely wasn't his intention, Trump was illustrating the key problem with current campaign finance systems. Campaign contributions are legally considered bribes only when there is an explicit quid pro quo. But as Trump explained, giving to politicians bought him access and relationships, which he could leverage down the road in the form of favors. Such conflicts of interest are inherent in privately funded election systems. No one on stage disputed Trump's depiction of the American political system. In fact, it was taken as a given. Earlier in the debate, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky had stated that Trump buys and sells politicians of all stripes. He wasn't so much complaining that big donors like Trump can buy and sell politicians as grumbling that Trump should only purchase Republicans. Uh, Trump, indicating towards Paul, responded, well, I've given him plenty of money. 
Trump has indeed made a considerable number of political donations as recorded by OpenSecrets.org, but those records don't show a contribution to Paul. At another point, Trump said that the U.S. healthcare system is badly designed because the insurance companies have total control of the politicians with which they're making a fortune. Other candidates also referenced the contributing influence of money in politics. Former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee stated that the problem is we have a Wall Street to Washington access of power that has controlled the political climate. He continued, the donor class feeds the political class who does the dance that the donor class wants. And the result is federal government that keeps getting bigger. Senator Ted Cruz said there are many career politicians in both parties who get in bed with the lobbyists and the special interest. Last weekend, GOP contenders Cruz, Rubio, Walker, Jeb Bush, and Carly Fiora attended a private meeting of elite campaign donors at a retreat in Southern California organized by Koch Industries Chief Executive Charles Koch. At the time, Trump tweeted, I wish good luck to all of the Republican candidates that traveled to California to beg for money from the Koch brothers. Puppets? So, I mean, I thought... (laughs) To admit that on stage in front of the world was kind of nifty. I, um, you know... Not that it's a surprise to anybody who actually follows politics. And it's not. But, yeah. And see, and now they're making... uh, Am I the odd duck out that, you know what, the guy makes derogatory statements... About everything. Okay. Singling him out for this statement or that statement Mm -hmm. is. I don't think it's so much that though. I I think it's that he had. He is brutally honest. He he had the stones to admit it. Yeah. I'm sorry. And you know, he stood there and and said it. And because you look at how many of these people that for years and years and years on cameras, all, you know, kissing babies and helping old ladies across the street. Mm-hmm. And, oh, my God, imagine the shock. This guy is a total piece of shit. <laughs> oh, but, you know, you were fine with this guy while he was kissing babies and helping old ladies across the street. Um, I'm not so much worried about somebody being politically correct. Okay? Mm-hmm. I would rather, honestly, have somebody... That's brutally honest. Then full of shit. You know, I was talking to somebody last night who was showing me the the Bernie Sanders uh, Black Lives Matter fiasco that happened. Um, and and that's quite the video if you haven't seen it. Um, and I was saying, you know, I, I feel kind of bad because I, I actually feel like. Um, Bernie Sanders probably cares about these people. And and this person said to me, you know, well, the American public elects whoever and we get who we deserve. And I'm like, I, I don't necessarily think that's true. And I tried to find an up spot about Trump, which is really hard because he thinks, you know, smoking and, and e-cigarettes should be banned. So I'm not a fan. Um, and Plus, he's a jerk, so I really can't stand him. But I, I tried to find, like, what would be the upside of a, a jackass like that winning? 
the presidency because there there really isn't one except that he would be the only one who actually made it to the White House with his own money. He would be the only one who bought and paid for his own election with his own money. And that would be really interesting. So that was the only up spot to that I could find. But I looked for one. I looked really hard. Um, that says something about how crappy the political system is here, I think. I, uh, I don't like Trump. I don't. Uh, I don't like anybody who wants to take away my freedom. Um, and he is all for sicking the FDA on vapors. So um, I've bitched about that man repeatedly, Jen. How many times have I said I think it's absolute bullshit that, you know, one of the richest men in the world gets to file bankruptcy on his casinos? Really? It's somehow this doesn't is this is not making sense to me. Um, so but I'm well, just saying everybody's well, it, making an issue out of the fact that, you know, well, he said this and this was very offensive to me as a woman. I don't give well, a crap what he you're says. You're a fucking politician, uh, lady. Lady, seriously, you are a fucking politician, and and you think he was offensive because he made a comment about a woman. He said a lot of really <laughs> shitty stuff about men, too. He said a lot of really bad things I, about a lot of people. I'm just, I'm getting, here, here, here's this one, Jan. I'm getting really offended with all these fucking people being really offended. <laughs> I don't understand. If you're offended, you're offended. Nothing happens. You're just offended, right? Oh, I mean, no, but how, how many how years this... did we live like that? Yeah, but that's you know not what how I mean? this game works now. Oh, you're offended? Well, we'll fix that. Well, it also works to the point where we're trying to erase history. Yep. You know, I, I, I actually saw a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, I can't be reading this, right? They want to take and blast, you know, the monument in Washington, D.C.? They want to blast the faces off that and put like ice cube and iced tea on it and stuff. Um, really? Is this a, a serious proposal or is it just something that got floated on Reddit? No, it's like a serious proposal. And I'm going. With... How many? How many school? How many schools, Jan? Now want <laughs> Mark Twain? Yeah, I know. Edited. Not just Mark Twain. I mean, to kill a mockingbird. <laughs> you can't read that. Not anymore. Somebody might be offended. It's ridiculous. Well, yeah, it is ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. I don't care if he's politically correct or unpolitically correct. I don't want somebody, um, a Republican or a Democrat or a middle of the road Green Party, Libertarian, whatever. I I don't want you oppressing me as a human being. Um, so. You saw Fight Club. Yes, I did. I watched Fight Club, and it melted my fucking brain. I'm like, holy <laughs> God. Jan. I love that movie. And Well, I watched it twice. Yeah, because, you kind of have to. Yeah, because after the end, mm -hmm. the first time, I was like, wait a fucking minute. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to go back and watch it all over again. Sixth Sense, mm -hmm. I was the same way with Sixth Sense. Not that these movies are anything alike. I'm just saying that <laughs> really. that slap in the face at the end, and you're like, how the fuck did I miss that? Mm -hmm. I had to go back and watch the whole thing over again. Yeah, Fight Club about melted my brain. I loved it. And the first time I watched it, I wasn't really uh, thrilled with it. I was in my early 20s. 
Um, and then I, I went away for five years and I watched it again. And now I watch it a lot. Um, there's something about starting from zero that I find really which, attractive. Yeah, which in theory sounds really good. Um, and But the reality is now with how much redundant backup of information there is, it would be next to fucking impossible. Nothing short of <sighs> a total economic collapse in this country. Yeah, but that that's going to that's going to that's going to have other unintended consequences. I I really am becoming a fan of we leave nobody behind. You know what I mean? No matter who they are. I really don't I don't want to know that somebody's suffering like that. Um at some point what happened in the early 80s with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, they started this ball rolling. And then the wealth trickled upwards and never came down. Um, I've said before, you know, we kind of have to have a mixed system. And a lot of the privatization has not really helped things. If you just look at the privatized prison system and what it's done to society. I mean, we are, quote, land of the free. How much of our population is locked away? More than China's, who is not really a free place to live? Um, I don't know. I think we've made a lot of mistakes. I think there are ways to reform it. Um, but I, I think it all starts with getting the government as small as humanly possible. Hey, I bartered. I want you to know, Jan, I bartered mm -hmm. um, fresh off the vine tomatoes for beets the other day because I don't have very many beets growing and they their tomatoes suck and aren't even starting to go ripe yet. So yeah, I'm I'm all into this barter system. Yeah. Yeah. Um somebody in the chat mentioned Mr. Robot. I love that show. Like I I it comes on a little too late for me to watch on Wednesdays, but um I I'm literally bounding to the DVR Thursday, just excited as a little kid. Uh, even though it's kind of dark and it has some side shoot stories, I still think the basic premise is possible. I think it's possible to get to all the redundancy. So, I'm sorry. Um, so, you bartered and you got... F that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's how they're doing things now in Greece, that their economy is collapsing. I think we've talked about that before. Oh, yeah. They don't have a choice. A couple of weeks ago. Last time I was on, we talked about it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not an ideal situation, but in a way it kind of is. I think we have a misunderstanding of, I keep saying this. I say this all the time. We have a misunderstanding of money. Money's no more real than Santa Claus. So if it only exists because you believe in it, does it really matter what form it takes? I guess is the question. On that note, I guess I'll look for something. Oh, okay, here we go. Facebook patent would allow lenders to determine creditworthiness by looking at your friends. Earlier this year, Facebook announced it would dip its toes into the pool of mobile payments by launching a system that allowed users to send money to friends via the Messenger app. 
Now it appears the company may take things a little bit further after receiving approval for a patent this week that would allow creditors to determine whether or not someone is worthy of a loan based on their circle of friends on the social networking site. The patent, which was actually applied for by Facebook back in August of 2012, is for a system of authorization and authentication based on an individual's social network. It could have several uses, including filtering out spam email and offensive content and improving searches on the site. However, it's the use related to approving or denying a loan request based on the friends you keep that is a bit worrisome. When an individual applies for a loan, the lender examines the credit ratings of members of the individual's social network or connected to the individual through authorized nodes, connections, the patent states. If the average credit rating of these members is at least a minimum credit score, the lender continues to process the loan application. Otherwise, the loan application is rejected. According to the patent, the lender would be able to access a potential borrower's social circle by submitting a request for information from Facebook's databases. They would then receive a series of lists, gray, black, and white, that would be used to determine the average credit score for the would-be borrower's friends. When the recently patent process, and while it seems pretty straightforward, the practical implications raise several questions and concerns. For one thing, just because your friends on Facebook doesn't mean that person has any impact on your everyday life or influence over your financial habits. The patent doesn't detail how a lender would weed out potential social network connections that might not have a significant influence on the borrower, like that long-lost high school classmate you haven't actually seen in 10 years. Additionally, the patent doesn't provide clear explanation for what the data provided related to connections includes. If it's just a credit score without a report that lists debts or defaults, how is one to know the consumer hasn't been unfairly penalized for things like medical debt? But perhaps the biggest concern is the fact that numerous studies have found information called online to create credit profiles for consumers are often inaccurate. Last year, the National Consumer Law Center published a report that found most credit reports generated by data brokers using information found online were riddled with errors. Seven of 15 consumer reports generated by eBureau, a company that touts advanced big data models, contained errors in estimated income. The reports nearly doubled the salary of one participant and half the salary of another. Additionally, 11 to 15 of the reports incorrectly stated the consumer's education level. Despite these concerns, it's possible the new patent won't even see the light of day. Just because a patent is granted doesn't mean a company has the intention to actually use it. And as CNN points out, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act strictly regulates what criteria, income, expenses, debt, and credit history, creditors can use when deciding if a consumer is worthy of a loan. It's nothing to lose sleep over for people with a decent credit history, but it could potentially affect those who are borderline to begin with. I don't know about you. I have a lot of friends who I don't think I'm doing so great, but I have a lot of friends who are doing less well than I am. Yeah. And I mean, (laughs) and I guess, and I guess I have to point this out. Right. Facebook says I have a fuck ton of friends. Mm-hmm. You and I both know that is not the reality, Jen. And a lot of these people, I have no idea who they are. Right. Other than to see them post in a, a vape group, I don't know who these people are. They yeah. don't know who I am. 
I would hate to think that these people got screwed on a loan because I was on their friend list. Yeah, exactly. Or that, you know, you lost the opportunity for a loan that you desperately needed, which, I mean, if you're like me, I don't really have credit. I mean, I have credit, but I, I try not to use credit. If I can't pay for it with what I have in my pocket, I don't, I don't need it. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I'm just funny like that, though. Um, I find it funny that wealth is created through debt and it lives in computer systems. And it's collections of ones and zeros now. If you took all the money on planet Earth, all the physical money, and tried to pay off all the debt with all the physical money, there isn't enough printed to do it. So money really isn't what we think it is. And it's not what it used to be. I think we can fix the political system and I think we can fix society in a big way if we just look at money differently. So, yeah. Do I think that'll happen? Not anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's going to be like Jeannie says. I think we're going to have a shit hits the fan moment and then things will have to change just because. So, yeah. I would like to think we have a choice, but I don't know. And I have often wondered if this move towards a one-world economy Mm. isn't to safeguard against that. Because, you know, if they get to this one-world economy and Mm -hmm. a country fails, whether that be something small like Greece or something huge like the United States or Russia... right fucking deal because we have a one world economy it's not like this country went bankrupt well we we definitely don't there's fungible assets and tangible assets and and all sorts of things but none of this is exchanged the way it was years ago um money was just your substitute for bartering that's that's all it is what money is is you what the actual credit of a country is, is the absolute productivity, the absolute possible productivity of its people, if they're all working. Um, but you can see a move towards automation. So that's not necessar- that doesn't necessarily hold true anymore either. You know, and it, it's not like when farmers started using oxen to pull the plows you know what i mean this is different this is a different sort of thing this is a technology that could you know very well become much smarter than we are much quicker than we anticipated and then everybody says well you can't always go to college you've got to have a ditch digger i don't think that's true and if i were about to graduate high school now I would go to school to be an engineer because somebody needs to fix the machines. Um, Yeah. I don't know. It's all just like tangled up in my head. Somewhere in there, there's some sort of solution, but I'm not exactly sure what it is. So, yeah. We had a really nice conversation with Bernie. Yeah. uh, Bernie wants to become a certified welder. Good for him. And you know what? 
I am going to support that decision. Smart kid. Heating, refrigeration, air conditioning. Gas wells, oil wells. Oh, exactly. You know, I mean, yeah. There's nothing that kid won't be able to do. You know, uh, fixing machines. (laughs) So, yeah, smart kid. Very smart kid. If Bernie had to go to a job every day where he sat or he just walked around, that he would be miserable. He really would. He couldn't. He could not do it, Jan. Yeah. Well, um, I was reading about how we're actually moving towards what they call a gig economy, which is something musicians really only did before. But now people are just getting a job here, there, when they can, and just living off that because the traditional structure of jobs is not what it used to be. Um, and I, I think that's true to a certain degree. I think there's certain jobs that are always there and those are the ones that have sort of the built in bureaucracy. Now, I'm not talking about government work, although that is one of the main employers. Um, I think the job market is really changing. I think everything's changing. I think it's changing faster than I anticipated. You know, a few years ago when I really started thinking about money, I didn't think it would be like this now. But at least Bernie's being smart about that, Jeannie. Mm-hmm. It's rare for a kid his age. He must have smart parents or something. No, he is still a stupid kid on a lot of things. But, you know, the fact no. that he's thought about this stuff, yeah, that's important. That's... You know, I mean, I'm not going to wait until this kid's a senior in high school and say, so... Have you decided maybe what you might want to <laughs> look at for the rest of your life now that you've got a month left of high school? Yeah. Yeah. I, I um. So, yeah. And I don't understand. I don't understand these kids that you say, so, um, what are you doing after graduation? Like, I'm going to college. Oh, yeah? What are you going to study? Oh, I'm just going to take general studies for a couple of years and decide. Like, fucking what? <laughs> Seriously? You're going to no, go to college for two years and then decide what you want to study in college? <laughs> and your parents are okay with this? Like, well, yeah, I can, you know, I can get student loans. And see, and that's another system that is really screwed up. We should We should talk about that one of these times, too. Okay. Because... All these kids that are going out here and getting all this financial aid Mm -hmm. with absolutely no concept of the fact that if you default on them. You don't default. You don't default. I mean, you're you're lucky the government doesn't come after you and sell your freaking plasma. They will haunt you for the rest of your life and you will never be eligible for Social Security. Yeah, no, you you don't get to default. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't think that. All of these kids out there now, I think that is going to be a financial crisis at some point. It is. In your lifetime and my lifetime. Because there are so many kids out there that are floating all of this money in financial aid. And the career that they're ending up with, if they end up with one, won't allow them to pay this money back. Oh, you mean Starbucks barista? Yeah. And all of these people, people doing that. Although these people are going to, of course, by the time they get old enough to technically to retire, 
um, Social Security age is probably going to be 90 by then. <laughs> um, but they're going to get there and go, what do you, wait, what, what do you mean? I paid in all this money. What do you mean? I can't. You know, and there's, it's going to be a problem. It is a problem. I mean, it's, it's already a problem. Um, and, and we can talk about student debt and um, that, that has a lot of issues that lead into it. Um, a lot of the grant systems and a lot of the financial aid the government gives have actually made a college education a lot more expensive which is not what you'd expect. And then, of course, when a university gets a hold of that sweet, sweet government money, well, they don't want to let that shit go. You know? Mm -hmm. Because then, hey, they're an institute that makes money. They're not an actual institute of higher learning, which is why you see, you know, colleges offering classes in, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> I mean, shit that was never courses before. Um, so it's it's a big thing, and yeah, we can talk about it more. I'm not completely up to date on it, but it, it's already a problem, and that's why, um, you notice President Obama wanted to do two years of college education free. Yeah. For for people graduating from high school well yeah, that's here's the because thing. somebody's the education... paying for that shit it is not fucking free no it's it's your your tax dollars at work but the education bubble is already starting to burst if it hasn't already um i don't know i don't think you need a piece of paper to say that you're smart enough i just don't you know you don't need a piece of paper to learn new things um coursera is really great, by the way, if you are looking into a career that's not going to cost you a ton of money and you don't mind paying $40 for a certificate. Um, Coursera is pretty great. Everything's there online, and they have a bunch of courses to choose from, and they're taught from major universities. I think um, a way to fix the college education economic model is to decentralize them and to have them online sort of like Coursera has done with an opt-in system for people who actually want to pay for a degree. Um, that would be a way to go. You don't necessarily need the overhead of having, you know, huge universities. You can still get just as good an education without that. Anyway. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail you. That's okay. We're just going to talk about uh, thermal cameras. <laughs> Which is just as pleasant a subject, I guess. Actually, probably less so. Yeah, it's a little disturbing. Yeah. Futuristic thermal cameras can't recognize your face in the dark. The surveillance cameras of the future don't need light to see your face. German computer scientist, um, Squaib... Safaras and Rainer Stelfagen have developed a thermal imaging system that can identify individuals by comparing their facial heat signatures to standard daylight pictures of their faces. The system sees in relative nondescript colorizations to indicate the surface temperature of whatever enters its field of vision, but its software processes these images so well that it might be able to identify who it sees. 
The researcher's facial recognition system is built on a neural network, which means its software carries out tasks in a way that imitates the human brain. It's a fast, efficient way to do this type of work. In testing, it, it successfully matched two images from a set among a set of 4,585 in a faster-than-blink-of-time 35 milliseconds. MIT Technology Review reports that its accuracy is just over 80% when it has a wide range of visible light images to compare the thermal image against. The one-to-one -one comparison accuracy is just about 55%, however. Startup Policy Lab's Director of Data and Privacy, Timothy Yim, suggests that this technology might deserve more warning bells than, hey, that's cool accolades. First, the technology itself is still being refined, he told the reporter. The possibility of false positives, especially given the criminal security context to which thermal facial recognition likely will be applied, could have grave consequences. Yim hypothesized a potentially treacherous future environment in which thermal imaging data is collected on a mass scale, as the NSA does with its notorious phone call metadata collection program. Coupled with known and yet-to-be-discovered correlations drawn from that thermal data, a host of once-private information could be laid bare, he said. For example, a man leaving a meeting with his boss two degrees warmer than he entered might be presumed incensed and dinged for insubordination. Or perhaps thermal data might inadvertently reveal that a young woman, an employee, is pregnant before she herself has revealed that information. If this technology were to be deployed across the United States in a public space today, it would be legally viable. If I had this tech and used it on a public street, depending on the state, it would be difficult to bring a privacy action against it, said Jeffrey Vagel, a lecturer in law and executive director of the Center for Technology, Innovation, and Competition at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. This doesn't take into account the limitless databases that might be storing the data for later use. That changes the calculus. He likened it to license plate readers, a law enforcement technology that has a chilling effect on basic civil liberties and the ability to travel freely. This experimental heat vision surveillance and identification system only works by maintaining a large collection of headshots to compare its thermal scans against. Its value and utility varies directly with the size of such a collection. More photos means a more increased likelihood of a match. Given enough thermal image, image correlations, we can derive lots more correlations, Yim told us. If thermal data and sensors become more widespread, what we once thought was private info could become public. Just 12 to 15 years ago, the thought of using one's real name on the Internet would have been met with grave security concerns. The thought of meeting someone in real life based on Internet-only socialization was laughable for the same reasons. Nowadays, we regularly send our credit card numbers and home addresses over the Internet, and apps like Tinder ugh, and Airnib suggest that its ability to connect real people in the real world is one of its most valuable applications. The nature of what we consider to be private information is changing, and it will only be more difficult to maintain privacy in the future. After all, it's easier to change your real name than your heat signature. Yeah. You know, and it's not even it's not even the least bit scary anymore. It's just like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Huh. Not surprising. No, not really. 
like I said, it's not even really, a lot of this stuff isn't really shocking anymore. It just is. And it's, it kind of bothers me because I, um, I know we couldn't have this discussion, this philosophical discussion, this discussion about what privacy is and isn't and what, like, say, your digital Fourth Amendment rights are. Um, We couldn't have it in a cognizant way without Edward Snowden, and yet the way the information was released by the reporters who worked with Snowden almost means we're kind of deadened to it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just like, oh, this is how it is now. That's a problem. Yep. We should ju- we should be just as upset about the idea of something as when it's actually done, and we're not because this is our reality now. Sorry, the fire whistle's going off in town. That's okay. I've got thunder outside the window. I'm surprised you can't hear it. <sighs> okay. So I didn't know if I was going to read this one. I think I am. Um, even for people who don't know who Martin Armstrong is, that's okay. Um, if you're interested at all, you might want to Google a film called The Forecaster. You'll find it pretty interesting. NSA, a tax and economics espionage agency. I didn't write this. This is speculation by Martin Armstrong. Anyone who thinks this is about terrorism is pathetically naive. The NSA is a top-notch tax and economics espionage organization. With terrorism so low on its agenda, it's laughable. You do not collect every phone call worldwide of billions of people to sort them out even to sort out even a hundred terrorists. They store all that data and can input your name and wham, up pops everything. I'm waiting for some smart lawyer in a divorce case to subpoena such a file to prove someone has been cheating to get a pile of money. In theory... The existence of such files should be open to everyone, just like the Nixon tapes. They must have copies of all the emails Hillary erased to hide her dealings with foreign governments to get money for the pretend Clinton charity. They all exist. Why has someone not demanded that the NSA turn them over? Well, it would open the floodgates on everyone else. The NSA didn't build that immense storage facility for nothing. They erase nothing, retain everything. They remembered their childhood songs of how Santa Claus knows everything and said, gee, we can do that. So why is Congress or even Trump, why isn't Congress or even Trump demanding the NSA turn over all her emails? Guess they do not want to publicly admit Snowden was correct. The NSA is a strategically aligned intelligence agency that has bought 1984 to life. The NSA has been deeply engaged in economic and industrial espionage, combating terrorism, global money laundering, corruption, and the fight against proliferation are all excuses used to justify tracking every dollar. They might as well put a GPS chip in the currency. Terrorism just a f- is just a fig leaf for what they have been building. If they were interested in just terrorism, they would have no need to store every phone call email, text, and written letter they can get their hands on. And we know that the U.S. mail service photographs our mail and stores it, too. 
New revelations claim that the NSA was spying on the French military industry, what they were producing, and to whom they were selling. Due to restrictive granting of export permits imposed by Germany, the German armaments industry is blocked. The French defense industry can count on the support of their government to ship to foreign lands. This is what distinguishes the French key industries from their German competitors. This has made the French military industry an interesting target for the NSA. This we can understand, but going beyond that opens Pandora's box. The key to understanding the NSA's mission profile for economic and industrial espionage began when the dividing line for national security expanded following September 11th. This has become a paradigm shift where everything from money flows, transport, energy, telecommunications, critical infrastructure, and the IT sector has been designed to track and control eventually everything. The garnering of information is only one part of a much broader intelligence operation. They're operating in secret. Not even Congress knows what they're really doing with the data. Snowden reported that staff created programs to collect nude photos that girls sent to their boyfriends, which certainly had nothing to do with national security. This is especially true when it comes to long-term strategic economic goals. The French newspaper Liberation recently reported that around 100 French companies, including almost all of the members of the Paris Stock Exchange, GAC40 Index, will be affected by NSA spying activities. The NSA is probably tracking all German companies since they would be even more critical given the German export economic model. The economic ties between German politics and economics contain politically interesting export markets, such as Russia or China, represents extremely valuable info regarding even the embargo against Russia. However, there are significant differences between the French and German key industries. German DAX companies were often listed on the U.S. stock market, whereas a French company was not. After the investigations in the course of compliance bribery scandals against Siemens unfolded, rethinking began within German industry and with respect to U.S. listings. DX companies such as Delmer, the German Telecom, and even before the alliance BASF, Bayer, Infineron, and Eon have retired for good reason from the U.S. market. Siemens followed in early 2004. Unbeknownst to most people, the Patriot Act in 2001 imposed administrative requirements. The SCC obtained new compliance powers for any company traded on the U.S. Stock Exchange. This has resulted in many foreign companies delisting from the USA in a massive, massive exodus. Listing on the U.S. Exchange opened the door for the NSA and other security authorities to engage in investigations and control beyond the U.S. borders, expanding even the FBI to outside the USA in the name of terrorism. Foreign banks expose themselves to U.S. law, even in their home offices, by merely having an office in the USA. The U.S. authorities went after and destroyed the Swiss banks by imposing all sorts of charges. This is why a USB suddenly donated to Hillary's charity in return for her intervening on their behalf. This is outright criminal bribery, but Hillary seems to think she walks on water. I didn't write this. An example of a ZDF post on May 17, 2000 shows that the NSA spied on German companies for the benefit of American companies. The most spectacular case is probably the case of VW, where the NSA from this station has intercepted video conferencing with VW, 
with the latter manager, Lopez, while then the results in the United States. Okay, so that's translated. So they intercepted teleconferencing between managers and VW and took and sent the information about projects they were working on to American companies. Okay. This is just like the tip of the iceberg. And this is what the NSA does. They spy on foreign banks. They look at where we spend our money and how we spend our money. And, and I don't really want to read the rest of this, but in a way I'm surprised the idea didn't occur to me before that this is what the collect it all, take it all, search it all was kind of about. It was about corporate espionage being done, mm-hmm. but not directly by the corporations. Therefore, it's not corporate espionage. Well, right, but if Does they're that taking all this loop, makes sense to you. It 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 makes kind of sense to me. It makes more sense to me than the idea that they're just spying on us for control. Control of what? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's always kind of what it's been in my mind. Okay, well, they're spying on us because they want control. Control of what? Control of our minds? How about control of our money? That makes more sense to me than anything else. I mean, it's kind of always been the motto, right? Follow the money. Mm-hmm. So that kind of makes sense to me more than anything else about why the NSA does what it does. I don't know. So this was kind of funny. Um, Snowden wanted to be leaked files to 4chan, but no one believed him. One person's dream of becoming the next Snowden or Manning was ruined when nobody believed the classified documents they posted to the internet were genuine. Michael Sariba was a 21-year-old graduate at Australia's Department of Defense when he happened upon information relating to the Five Eyes spying program. According to The Age, he uploaded the file to 4chan, which is always a stupid idea, in October 2012, all the while speaking about his admiration for Julian Assange, Unfortunately, only 14 people chose to comment on the post, many of which Scarbia is alleged to have described as a bunch of fake and gay remarks. Scarbia, now 25, is awaiting trial in Australia's Supreme Court and stands accused of accessing and leaking confidential information. The Brisbane Times has pointed out the tension between civil rights activists and intelligence agencies before the case. After all, much of the trial will concern secret data and the documentation relating to the case will be destroyed 28 days after the hearing concludes. There is no way to tell what information was contained in the leak, but Serbia is quoted as saying, I realize, I release what I feel should be in the media, bombings, civilian deaths, actions of terrorists that aren't reported in the media. We do know, however, that the file concerned Five Eyes, the international program of surveillance cooperation between the U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia, and New Zealand. The incident was discovered purely by accident, too, since a former employee of Australia's intelligence agency stumbled upon the posts and alerted authorities. So, you know, at least one person worked out that the files were genuine. (laughs) That's kind of sad. Sad, funny, I guess, more than funny, haha. 
Yeah, but we cover a lot of stuff that's funny, sad, not funny, haha. Funny, ironic, I think. Was probably more the word I was looking for. I don't know. Um, do we care about Chris Christie? Not so much. Man sentenced to 30 years of jail for insulting the Thai monarchy on Facebook. No appeal possible because Thailand is still under martial law. Man has been sentenced to 30 years of imprisonment for insulting Thailand's monarchy on Facebook. The long jail term was imposed under the country's harsh... I'm not bothering to try to translate that law. Literally meaning injured majesty, majesty law which lays down that anyone convicted of insulting the king, queen, heir, or regent faces up to 15 years in prison on each count. As the Guardian reports, Bangkok's military court found this poor man um, <laughs> who's 48. I'm this, so sorry, Barry isn't this here. This guy's name is very boring. It's not here. Yeah. Uh, guilty of posting messages and pictures defaming the monarchy in six posts on the social media site. Although he faced a possible 90 years in prison, the court imposed only 60 years, 10 years for each insulting post, which was then halved because he pled guilty. His lawyer pointed out that this is a new record for the law and noted there could be no appeal against the sentence since it was imposed by a military court in a country still under martial law. The Guardian article says that convictions for uh, insulting the majesty have increased dramatically since Thailand's general seized power from the elected government in May 2014. The Thai tradition of imposing or threatening to impose long jail sentences for insulting the monarchy goes back many years. Ars Technica reported how in 2006 a naturalized U.S. citizen from Thailand was arrested when he returned to his native land and allegedly forced to confess to breaking the law. He was released after promising not to do so again and praising the country's king. In 2007, a Swiss man was jailed for 10 years for the crime of injuring the majesty after an initial sentence of 20 years, which was halved because he confessed. The same approach was taken by the court earlier this year when an initial sentence of 50 years for posting five defamatory pictures on Facebook was cut to 25 years. The Injure the Majesty law has also been used to justify censorship and online snooping. In 2007, YouTube was blocked in Thailand for hosting a video deemed insulting to the king, while reports in 2014 suggested the law could be used to carry out mass surveillance, specifically targeting those producing and reading uh, Injure the Majesty contact, content. The Guardian article notes that the critics of the law see it as being used in a targeted fashion against political enemies of the royalist elite and their military allies, as well as anyone opposed to the coup. The coup. Yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty bad. That is just really not surprising. No, but I mean, to find out who rules you, you have to know who you're not allowed to insult, right? So, yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. This is crazy and sad. There's another place I won't be going. God, there's like, I'm running out of places I could go to. <laughs> if you hit the lottery and become a millionaire, you are not going to be a world traveler, Jan. No, I'm just going to have to fucking, I'm, 
I'll just have to sit. Are you kidding me with the stuff I talk about every week? I'm surprised I'm not on the fucking no fly list. Um, yeah. Okay. So we talked about the horrible shower gel idiot. (laughs) This one's kind of good. I was kind of happy about this one. Uh, Germany halts treason inquiry into journalists after protests. For the good of media freedom, Germany's prosecutor general suspends investigation into reporters who said the state planned to boost surveillance. A treason investigation into two journalists who reported that the German state planned to increase online surveillance has been suspended by the country's prosecutor general following protests by leading voices across politics and media. Harold Range, Germany's prosecutor general, said on Friday he was halting the investigation for the good of the press and media freedom. It was the first time in more than half a century that journalists in Germany had faced charges of treason. Speaking to, oh, some newspaper, Range said he would await the results of an internal investigation into whether journalists from the news platform Netzpolitik.org had quoted from a classified intelligence report before deciding how to proceed. His announcement followed a deluge of criticism and accusations that Germany's prosecutor had misplaced priorities, having failed to investigate with any conviction the NSA spying scandal revealed by whistleblower Edward Snowden and targeting instead the two investigative journalists, um, those guys. Marcus Beckendell and Andre Meester? Sure. Yeah, we'll go with that. Uh Very damn it, you're not here. (laughs) That's true. And a scathing attack, the leading Green MP, Renat something. Renat Kunstest. Okay, we're going to let, since this is German and you can read some of this, we're going to let you do the names. I'm trying. I know you are. (laughs) Thank you was also the chair of Bundstang's Legal Affairs Committee, called the investigation a humiliation into the role of law. She accused Range of disproportionately targeting the two journalists while ignoring the massive spying and eavesdropping conducted by the NSA in Germany. Kunst told the Knoller Stadt... Yeah, the last one, you got me. I have no idea. Enzinger? Enzinger? Sure. Nothing happened with that. If it wasn't for investigative journalism, we would know nothing. Wolfgang Kubicki of the pro-business PDF, FDP party, also said he found it disconcerting. Yeah, it looks like it should be PDF to me. I don't know why. Well, it did me too. Also said he found it disconcerting that Range had ignored the NSA's allegations while choosing to pursue the journalists. Instead of intimidating journalists, the state prosecutor should resume the investigation proceedings into the NSA. And after that, he that he only recently abandoned, he said. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, yay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not reading the rest of that. That's weird. Yeah, there's too much German in there. We'll both look like idiots. Yeah, the two of us are like struggling through it like uh, fifth graders. It's pretty bad. And uh, I think we're actually pretty well-read people. You are. Um, I don't know if I want to do that one. Because it's getting close to eight. And I'm sure you want to go eat. And you've got a life. Oh, 
Yeah, the TTP. I said I would talk about the TTP tonight. TTP negotiators leave Hawaii while the conclusion of the deal still looms. Despite intense pressure to wrap up with a complete deal, the Hawaii round of the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations ended on Friday in a deadlock. The trade ministers ultimately remained in disagreement over auto, dairy, and biologic drug patent provisions. This is a major setback for the White House, which had promoted this round of talks as the final meeting that would result in a complicated trade agreement. They badly wanted to conclude the TTP the TTP last week because now it's not possible for the Obama administration to sign it and get the congressional ratification deal before the end of 2015. The fast track bill passed earlier this summer stipulates various time schedules for trade agreements that make use of the trade promotion procedure. This includes a mandate that at a minimum 90 day notice must be given before the president signs an agreement. 30 days after the notice, the text must be posted publicly online. Then the White House must wait at least 30 days to send to Congress the final deal. On top of all that, the deal needs to be legally scrubbed and properly translated, which would take weeks to complete. So in order for the Obama administration to be able to get it done by the end of the year, they had to have it concluded by August. Last Saturday. This this is an older story. The more the GTP is delayed, the more this debate overlaps with the U.S. presidential election season and puts the trade agreement in the blinding spotlight. By the time any vote can happen on the agreement, we'll have the text to read and analyze, so we'll be able to make our lawmakers answer to specific issues in the TTP and force them to take accountability for everything that has been negotiated in secret in the meantime. The Canadian election, which has just been called for the weekend, also throws a wrench in the TTP's conclusion. This usually means that the caretaker convention kicks in, where the government becomes restricted to dealing only with routine administrative activities and is unable to pass any new major legislation or policy changes, including international trade deals. But yesterday, the Canadian government suddenly released new guidelines that are essentially designed to grant itself the power to continue negotiating the TTP. Even if the current administration claims it can stay involved in the TTP talks, that doesn't mean that it has an actual mandate to do so. Other TTP countries may not have the confidence that the government is able to commit to anything it agrees to in the deal since the current administration could be voted out. And like the U.S., the overlap of the TTP discussions with the election gives Canadian voters an opportunity to probe their candidates about their stances on the hundreds of issues raised by the TTP and demand accountability over provisions that don't correspond with their own domestic policy objectives. The TTP is stalling, but that doesn't mean it's dead. Despite an increasing number of signs that the deal may be in trouble, we can't be assured that the TTP is actually dead. Trade ministers still seem to be confident that the deal can be completed soon and claim that they made significant progress in this last round of talks. U.S. Trade Representatives Michael Foreman, what a nice name, said, We are more confident than ever that TTP is within reach and that we've agreed we're going to continue to engage intensively in this coming period with the goal of resolving outstanding issues. Many sources say the next official meeting will not happen until at least November and even the USTR hinted 
that efforts to complete the deal will go on even without any formal scheduled talks. The major remaining issues involve auto, dairy, and pharmaceutical policies, but there is still the indication that countries are still resisting the most extreme copyright provisions. Does this include rules on a life plus 70 years copyright term? We can only hope so, but the signs are not good. Australia seems to be pushing back on its obligations around ISP liability rules, which set out obligations on how and when websites and online services need to remove content based on notice claiming copyright infringement. The TTP's text on this issue is more flexible than the deal Australia got in its bilateral deal with the U.S., so Australia is seeking a footnote that would make the TTP's more general rules override the harsher, more specific takedown rules that they signed on to earlier this year in the Australia-slash-U.S. trade agreement. There's no way of knowing what's in store for the TTP now, but the deal is only going to grow more controversial. People are realizing how it is wrong for our governments to be deciding so many regulatory issues behind closed doors and trading away public interest policies in the name of lowering tariffs and enabling market access for various commodities. This is not how digital policy should be decided, nor any kind of domestic regulation that affects people's lives. Our rights online and over our digital devices should not be sacrificed in the crossfire of special interest horse trading. As long as rules for the online and digital environment are in the deal, and as long as there is still a real threat that it will pass, we need to keep raising awareness about this toxic deal and fight back. Yeah, because it's pretty warped. Some fucked up shit. If you've managed to read any of the stuff WikiLeaks has managed to put out, there's some pretty bad shit they're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you didn't want to have drugs that you could afford when you got sick, right? Well, if you didn't, then you'd love the TTP. We talked about that when Ebola was yeah, being brought knowingly and intentionally into the country. They've actually got what they think is a working vaccine. In Canada. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, now they've been testing it in Sierra Leone. Which I should probably get and read a story about that. But yeah, they've been testing it for a while. They've actually got something that works. Um, The health charities, I use that with air quotes or scare quotes, whatever you want to call it. The health charities got together and bullied the shit out of a bunch of drug companies. And a bunch of biotech companies. And got them to graft something together. And so far it's looking like it works. And you notice how we don't hear anything about that anymore? Oh, I do. I keep really close track because um, I'm not a big fan yeah, of the World Health Organization, oddly. Yeah, you go digging for that info. Yeah. How much have you heard about Ebola on the news? Oh, In you won't because months? they don't need something to distract you from something else with just yet. You know, they've got Trump. And Honestly, it's not that's like, my... It's not like the Ebola pandemic has gone away. No, it's still there. It's still bubbling under the surface. There's still people getting sick. Um, it's kind of bad. And 
you know, their criteria, the World Health Organization's criteria for diagnosing it is um, shitty. So, I mean, they're catching dengue fever and Lhasa virus in there with it. You know what I mean? Because the symptoms are so similar. And of course, you know, once you look at somebody and go potential Ebola victim, the last thing you want to do is go take their blood, right? So you're going to slam them in a hospital with other sick people. And if they don't have it, and their immune system's already low from something else, they're probably going to get it. So these things, these last-ditch things that were supposed to save people have probably transmitted more disease than you'd think. A cheerful thought, I know. (laughs) Because we like to be, you know, handing out happy, cheerful things to people. That's right. Now, at, if at the end of the show you're not saying, you know, whistle while you work, we haven't done our job. It's, it's a joke. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, you you don't hear about Ebola anymore. But you don't hear about Ebola anymore because there's no need. Um, you've got Trump out there insulting Megyn Kelly, saying she's on the rag, and you know things like that, and. Um, it's like a big circus. It's, it's bread in circuses. If they can distract you from what's going on in Rome, then what's going on in Rome can still keep going on. Baffle them with bullshit. So, yeah. That was fun. I don't... I'm trying to think what else I said I was going to talk about. Because I I don't think I said I was going to talk about that much stuff tonight. And I don't actually think I have that much stuff to talk about. Just because it's all been such fantastic news, you know. Um, Although it was funny to talk about Trump, actually. More shit shit happening in Ferguson. (sighs) Okay. Tell me about it. Well, the one-year anniversary of the kid's death. Michael and, Brown. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, here we have, you know, these police shoot an unarmed man. And, you know, it was really funny is I had watched three news stories this morning before I heard one reporter say, after protesters opened fire. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, this is what you get. When five corporations control the news you hear. And I know I sound crazy when I say all this shit, but it's not a lie. So if you're not hearing both sides of the story, it's not because there isn't another side. It's because there's basically five people deciding what you're going to hear. And what their narrative is. For God only knows what reason. Another cheerful thought, right? Do I want to do this one? Can you see what I clicked on? No. Um, the one oh, about Argentina. Um. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's going to surprise anybody. That's the worst part about this. This stuff used to be yeah, not so much shocking. Be, oh my god! You could... <gasps> and now it's like, well, yeah. Uh huh. Exactly. Well, I won't even need to do the whole thing then. 
malware hunter finds spyware used against dead Argentinian prosecutor. On January 18th this year, Argentinian prosecutor Alberto Nisman was found dead in his apartment under mysterious circumstances. I didn't write this, okay? The next day, he had been scheduled to appear before the country's Congress to deliver what was bound to be an incendiary testimony, accusing the current president, Cristina Fernandez de Kircher, of trying to cover up Iran's alleged involvement in the bloody bombing of Buenos Aires in 1994. I might get out of this dead, he said the day before. And, you know, he did. As it turns out, Nisman had good reason to be paranoid. In fact, someone had been spying on his cell phone for six weeks using surveillance software that was capable of listening in on calls, reading messages, and capturing images of his screen, as revealed by Morgan Marquis Barol, the director of security at First Look Media and a security researcher who has been chasing government-made hacking tools around the globe for years. At the Black Hack Security Conference in Las Vegas on Wednesday, Marquis Barol revealed he had personally analyzed a sample of the malware used to spy on Nisman and a talk he gave alongside fellow malware hunter Marion Mishalik, who recently helped uncover the French malware barber. Before the talk on Wednesday, very few details had come out about the malware used against Nisman. A local news report from early June, for example, only mentioned that forensic experts confirmed the presence of a Trojan virus on Nisman's phone. Two weeks later, however, a small Argentinian newspaper called El Tempo mentioned the full name of the file that was used to infect Nisman's Android cell phone, a Motorola XFT626, in an article about the investigation into Nisman's death. That name, which is something I'm not even going to read, because the name, strictly secret and confidential.pdf.jar, was enough to provide Marquis Bohr with a lead. He searched for it on VirusTotal, an online repository where anyone can upload files to see if they're detected as malicious by different antiviruses and found it. This file matches one sample and one sample only, Marquis Bohr said during the talk. The file was uploaded at the end of May from Buenos Aires, roughly three months after Nisman's death. It's unclear who uploaded it to Virus Total or why. The site does not show this information. Marquis Bohr's investigation showed that the malware is a remote tool, RIT, known as Alien Spy. Marquis Bohr can't say for sure who was really behind the spyware, but some indicators he found in the sample pointed to Argentina or Uruguay. So, you know, it could have been anyone, Marquis Bohr said, with perhaps a slight touch of sarcasm. Hard to believe government would spy on a whistleblower, huh? Who would have thought such a thing? I know. Because they're only out to look after us. They care about us. I I just cannot begin to tell you how absolutely (laughs) shocked I am that this (laughs) poor guy ended up dead i mean that was just i never would have expected that to happen (laughs) i know yeah yeah i think the i think snowden needs to be really glad that his shit was as public as it was well i think he did that deliberately because otherwise i you know don't hold out much 
uh, life expectancy for the guy. Yeah, well, there's something about... I mean, now had his last name been Hussein, he could have hid forever. <laughs> there's something about that, though. You know... How long was it that our government had been blabbing on about, on, on about if you see something, say something? Yeah. Well, he did. He did, and now they don't like him. <laughs> I know. Yeah. They are mad at him because he wasn't supposed to say those things. <laughs> That's true. It see something, okay say something he only. Said different things, just not those things. Okay, so what you're saying is see something, say something only applies to your neighbors. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, as long as we're clear. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what they meant to say. <laughs> they just had a small clarification problem. Yeah. Well, they weren't real clear. So, yeah. I mean, I guess that's about it for this week, huh? Yes, ma'am. I think we're yeah. good. Stick a fork in it. Yeah. Okay. Add Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices fast. Amoseek.com. Okay, so tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for more, you know, happy, happy, good time news. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>